This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 10, which is on page 778 of the Pew Bible. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness. That would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. Thanks, Radhika. There are 52 Sundays in a year, and for every one of them, there is some suggested Sunday theme out there. And at High Point Church, we only do two of them. In the fall, we do the Day of Prayer for the Global Persecuted Church. And in the second Sunday of January, we do Sanctity of Life Sunday, specifically focused on human dignity. Human dignity, and our understanding of it, comes directly from a fundamental biblical concept that all human beings have been created in the image of God. Every human bears the divine image. The most direct, immediate, and daily application of that is that whenever we relate to another person, everything of courtesy, honesty, just dealings, impartiality, all of that is based on the fact that you are looking at a divine image-bearing equal when you do anything. But the Bible specifically emphasizes those areas of justice related to human dignity that we ignore. 
the mistreated, that is, widows, orphans, foreigner, the racial outsider, the sick or disabled, the poor and disconnected, the indebted and imprisoned, the religiously persecuted, the politically persecuted, the prophetic truth-teller who speaks what people don't want to hear, the peacemaker. And we can add the unborn, those suffering from an epidemic of fatherlessness, divorce, and so on. It also focuses us on the mistreaters. People are prone because of their position to mistreat the rich, the political, the legal officials, the military agents, and the religious leaders. Human dignity has no shortage of attackers here, globally, cosmically. It has to be on our minds, and we have to make it be on our minds because we want to avoid and ignore it because we often benefit from the systems that create it or perpetuate it, and the people who do it intentionally hide it. And so locally, one of the, one of the justice and mercy ministries that we promote is CareNet. You'll see in your bulletin that there is an insert from CareNet. CareNet focuses on helping um, women who are pregnant in ways they did not plan on and they are not prepared for. And especially under the new national CEO, they're focusing more than they ever have on the issue of fatherlessness. Accessing the guys who helped make the babies and reconnecting them to how being a father is fundamental to their manhood. Globally, one of the agencies and organizations that we, we partner with is International Justice Mission. John Good, our speaker today, is the church mobilization director with IJM. IJM works um, for justice globally as a distinctly Christian legal group um, attacking injustice and helping victims in some of the most blatant and horrific areas of injustice in the world. Sex trafficking, forced prostitution— debt slavery, land confiscation from widows, those kinds of things on multiple continents. We as a church partner with them. IJM is one of our, the mission agencies we give money to out of the portion of our budget that goes to missions, which means that as a church we support them, and as a church we support people supporting them. Um, so today we've specifically invited John to help us by talking about IJM's ministry to seek the mind of Christ on this question of human dignity as it relates to global justice and injustice. Um, just a couple things you may care to know. Um, John was a pastor here in Madison. He lives in Minneapolis now, but he was a pastor in our town. He's done a good bit of work with, um, with World Vision. And following this service, there's going to be a luncheon in the Micah Center where you can hear more about this stuff. So I hope you'll— uh, Hope you come. Why don't you pray with me as we invite John to come up? Father, as John comes up, we confess that the flesh, um, indwelling sin in us, does not want to hear about this. We don't want more responsibilities. We want fewer responsibilities. We don't want to feel like we're responsible for anything like this or to it. We don't, we don't really want our world changed. We barely feel like we have a handle on our experiences as they are. But we know that, that your heart has always been for the world, and you're always complicating our lives in beautiful ways. And we pray now that you would help us listen as we should. 
recognizing the value of the divine image in every human being and that every affront to that image is an affront to your own glory and our own being. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Thank you, Nick. As Nick mentioned, uh, my name is John Good. I live in Minneapolis, but it's important for me that you know this about me. I may live in Minneapolis, but I am a Packer fan. Okay? Yeah. Wow, applause already. That's great. Uh, If you were to go to my front yard right now, you would see the American flag and right below it, the Packer flag that I proudly fly and take some heat from my neighbors for doing so, but it's worth it. So go pack. Let's be honest. When you have a stranger in your pulpit, you don't know what to expect. I recognize that. And so I want to thank you for the trust that you have placed or your pastor has placed in me to allow me to be here. As Nick mentioned, I used to live in Madison. That's how I was converted to be a Packer fan. Uh, Both my kids were born here. I love this city. It's great to be back. I've been in this church before, but I've never been in this place in this church. So this is a great honor and privilege for me. Anytime I speak somewhere, I always keep two other speaking engagements in mind to guide and direct me. The first was about 10 years ago, I was asked to speak at a church in Appleton. It was during the summer and the vacation Bible school was going on and the children had painted an enormous sign that I think might have had the theme of the Bible study or the Bible school. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but the entire time that I spoke right behind me in massive letters was a hand-painted sign with one word on it and the word was clueless. That's a tough, uh, that's a tough venue uh, in, in which to speak. The second speak engagement that I always keep in mind, I wasn't the speaker, I was actually in the second row, and it was a children's sermon at the church I used to serve in Minneapolis. My three-year-old daughter came up, stood on the steps. I don't remember who gave the sermon, it's not important. What I do remember is at the end of the sermon, my daughter turned around, and as she came back to my wife and I in the second pew, She said in a very loud stage whisper, what was that about? (laughs) Which she was speaking the mind of, I think, many of us there that day. So my role today is one, to try not to be clueless, and two, try to speak something that a three-year-old could understand. (laughs) That's my goal. And to that end, let me pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. Slavery doesn't exist anymore. Actually, it does. We just don't see it. We don't see the small boy forced to work in a brick factory, carrying more than twice his body weight. Or the mother, with her two small children sitting at her feet, working without pay and without end. 
or the young girl whose body is sold again and again and again. But there is hope because there is a group of people working day and night, relentlessly searching for each one of these lives. And when they free one life, they search for the next and the next and the next, making them the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world. They are called International Justice Mission. Right now, there are still over 35 million slaves. If this problem seems too big for them to handle alone, you're right. So there's a new plan. It starts with you. The end of slavery starts with believers who can see. When we see a small boy whose name is Kumar, we can make sure he is allowed to go to school. We'll see the mother named Gaut, who is now working for a fair wage that will give both her and her children a better life. And we will see the young girl. Her name is Mien, and her body will never, ever be sold again. When you and your church join with IJM, each life set free will add up, becoming hundreds and then thousands and then millions until we finally can say, slavery doesn't exist anymore. Join us. In 1994, a Washington attorney by the name of Gary Haugen, who worked for the Department of Justice, was asked by the United Nations to travel to Rwanda and to lead the investigation following a horrific genocide which had taken place in that country. In the space of 100 days, an estimated 800,000 to 1 million Rwandans were systematically slaughtered. And Gary's job, primarily as lead investigator, was to go to the sites of mass graves and identify cause of death. And so he traveled to schools, to churches, to fields where people had run in hope of safety, and they'd ended up being killed. As you can imagine, this changed Gary's life dramatically. He returned from his weeks in Rwanda back to Washington, D.C., but he couldn't go back to his old life because he had seen firsthand that poverty and oppression go together. And you can't solve one without addressing the other. He had seen it in its most starkest and brutal aspect. And so it took him three years, but after three years' time, he left his secure job with the Department of Justice, and he started a new organization. It was called International Justice Mission. And the reason Gary did this is because his trip to Rwanda made him realize in no uncertain terms that the poorest and the most vulnerable people on the planet, at least in this country at this time in Rwanda, 
what the poorest and most vulnerable people needed at their time of greatest need was not a well for clean water, it wasn't a new school, it wasn't a new health clinic, it wasn't seeds for farming, it wasn't a microloan, it wasn't a Bible study, it wasn't a film about Jesus, it wasn't a child sponsor. What the most vulnerable people needed at their time of greatest desperation was simply a hand to hold back the oppressor. Without that hand there, none of the other things mattered. And so international justice mission was started with the hope of providing that hand. Because when that hand is there to hold back the oppressor, all of the un, one other wonderful development work that is being done by fantastic organizations around the world, water and health clinics and schools and evangelism, all of that can then be accessed to a far greater degree. So the mission of International Justice Mission was to rescue thousands, protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. It's possible. Gary saw that when this isn't provided, all of this great development work is eroded, it's eaten away, as though there were locusts out there devouring all of this great work. He coined a term, the locust effect, to capture what he had seen. Fantastic ministry being done in the name of Jesus Christ that simply can't be accessed because the most vulnerable people on the planet are in harm's way. And we at IJM have seen the locust effect. We've seen how people can't access what is provided. Gary tells the story of one community that he visited where a water well had been drilled and the community rejoiced until a few months later, the stories were coming out that many of the women and girls on their way from the village to the well were getting assaulted. And so they stopped going to access the clean water which had been provided for their community. The humanitarian organization that had drilled the well put their heads together and decided on their solution. And the solution was this drill another well closer to the village. And they did that, and everyone rejoiced at that solution. It was the best solution that anyone could come up with. But the problem was, it didn't solve the problem. <laughs> Women and girls were still getting raped on the shorter distance from the village to the clean well. It's as if in America, if we'd heard on a college campus that women and girls were getting raped on their way from the dorm to the library, the solution that was provided would be 
to build another library closer to the dorm, right? Of course not. (laughs) That's almost laughable. We wouldn't do that. We all know what we would do. We would enforce the law, the law that says it's illegal to assault women and girls on their way to the library. And so we would put law enforcement to work to investigate, to apprehend, to prosecute, to convict, and to punish the offenders. That's how you stop the problem long term. But in many poor communities around the world, that solution is what is laughable. Because the prospect of law enforcement that actually is effective is out of the realm of comprehension. Either because law enforcement doesn't exist in that part of their country, or because law enforcement is poorly trained, or poorly resourced, or corrupt, or any number of other reasons. It just isn't an option. And so IJM was formed in order to prove that justice for the poor, as hard as it is to comprehend in many of these communities, actually is possible. And to that end, as you saw in the video, we are seeking to mobilize a movement, a movement of people who can help us address these huge endemic problems in our world. We want to mobilize a movement. It's a tall order, but we believe it can be done. And an important first step in doing that is to begin to realize exactly what a movement is, because there are some common misperceptions about what a movement is. Let me illustrate with some history. On this day, 88 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. was born. We celebrate him today. He's got his own holiday. And you may recognize the photo behind me. It was taken on the afternoon of August the 28th, 1963, and it was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. What you don't see in this picture is the quarter million people that Dr. King was addressing. This was the March on Washington. And we all know the speech that he gave that day, even though not a single person in this room was there, I assume. Was anyone there? No. None of us were there, but we know what he said. It was the I Have a Dream speech. We were taught it in school. We've seen it on video. We've read it. We know the speech. It started like this. Dr. King said, I'm happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. He was prophetic. He said, we have come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. And the condition was that facing African Americans A hundred years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, Dr. King said prophetically and powerfully, it is shameful that in our country, 
African Americans are still enslaved. He shared the dream that he had for a nation where those walls and the oppression was broken down. Many historians consider King's dream speech as the turning point in the civil rights movement because for hundreds of years, blacks had been fighting for equal rights in America. And now on this day, August 23rd, with hundreds of thousands in attendance, millions watching on TV, Dr. King rallied the cause. And a year later, the Civil Rights Act was signed by President Johnson, making discrimination in schools, workplaces, public facilities illegal. A year after that, the Voting Rights Act was signed. Change was happening. The movement was working. The speech was the event that helped to make it happen. But the speech wasn't the movement. The speech was only one moment. Because movements are really the culmination of hundreds, if not thousands, of moments. You don't get a movement without moments. We all know about Dr. King's moment, but what we don't know some of the other moments that allow that movement to take place. A movement happens when people do what they can with what they have. Dr. King's speech was part of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. One event on one day that changed our nation. We remember Dr. King, but do we remember this guy? Bayard Rustin? You ever heard of him? I hadn't. He was the logistics guy. He was the behind-the-scenes guy who led a team of 200 activists who publicized, recruited, coordinated, provided marshals, arranged all of the details. He rented space in Harlem for 165 bucks. He had only two months to get all the plans for the March on Washington. He raised, in today's dollars, the equivalent of a million bucks. That was his moment in the movement. And then there was Joyce Ladner. You ever heard of her? Probably not. She was one of Rustin's 200 volunteers. She was a college junior. She traveled to Harlem in the summer of 63 to work for Rustin at the March headquarters. She shared a one-bedroom apartment with three other girls. Often she had to wait for one of her roommate's friends to stop playing the guitar on the couch so that she could go to bed. Her bed was the couch. That guy actually ended up playing guitar on the March. His name was Bob. He had a moment or two as well. He played a part in the movement. Joyce Ladner worked 18-hour days, six days a week, for two months, helping to coordinate logistics for a quarter million people to attend the march. She and her teammates marshaled 2,200 chartered buses, 40 trains, 22 first aid stations, eight 2,500-gallon water storage tank trucks, 21 portable water fountains, and they got the word out 
for a quarter million people to attend before the internet and Facebook. There were 900 chartered buses from New York alone, and on the day of the march, more than 100 buses an hour were arriving in D.C. And how about the hundreds of volunteers who worked hours preparing 80,000 50-cent box lunches? A cheese sandwich, a slice of pound cake, and an apple. That was their moment in the movement, 80,000 cheese sandwiches. You ever heard of them? Then there was my favorite, Ledger Smith. He was a 27-year-old truck driver from Chicago. He wanted to spread the word. So he left his home in Chicago on the morning of August 17th, 10 days before the march. He made his way through South Bend and Fort Wayne, Indiana, through Lima, Columbus, Zanesville, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia, Pittsburgh, Uniontown, Pennsylvania, Hagerstown, and Frederick, Maryland. He arrived in D.C. on the 27th of August. He wore a red sash with the word freedom for everyone to see. And what makes his journey remarkable is that he didn't drive his truck. He didn't drive a car. He didn't take a plane or a bus. Ledger Smith traveled by roller skate. 685 miles. And each and every mile, he had the spotlight that he pointed to D.C. When he arrived, rolled into Washington, D.C., the reporters were waiting for him. They asked him for a quote. He was exhausted. (laughs) He'd lost 20 pounds. He didn't want to talk to reporters. He said, "Uh, I think my legs have done enough talking. (laughs) He did what he could with what he had. And his moment became part of the larger movement. Without the moment, there is no movement. It's it's very tempting to say, those are just nice little stories. That's just making sandwiches and printing flyers and renting buses and roller skating. That's all it is. But you add up all those, just those moments, and you get a movement you get a movement. I would propose to you this morning that history is often changed by people who don't know they are making history in the moment. They're just doing their part in the larger movement. That's what IJM is trying to do. We're trying to mobilize a movement of people to do what they can with what they have to prove that justice for the poor is possible. And the reason we're doing it is because the sad truth is that Dr. King's words from that day still ring true. This is the movement. This is the movement. And to that crowd, Dr. King said, slavery still exists in this country. And that is shameful. 
And folks, the bad news today is slavery still exists. We call it by different terms. We call it trafficking or forced prostitution. We call it bonded servitude, forced labor. But the sad truth is, it's slavery. And it's still going on. As hard as it is to believe, the words of the psalmist that we heard read this morning are still true. The wicked still hunt down the weak who are caught in their schemes. He waits by villages like a lion in cover to catch the helpless. As you saw in the video, there are more than 35 million slaves in the world today, and I'm sorry to say that is a very conservative estimate. It's more like 45 million. 45 million. That's a big number. How many is 45 million? Well, it's the population of Wisconsin and Minnesota and every man, woman, and child in Iowa and Illinois and Michigan and Indiana and North Dakota and South Dakota. That's 45 million people. It's also the population of the entire nation of Canada, plus 10 more million, all enslaved today, 2017. That's why IJM exists. We want to mobilize a movement. Slavery is not only big in terms of numbers, it's also big business. How big? 150 billion with a B big. Today's slave trade generates more profits than Coca-Cola or Disney or GE or IBM or Chevron or Wells Fargo or ExxonMobil or all of those corporations combined. It's profitable. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking here about metaphorical slavery. These aren't metaphors. We're talking about human beings who are owned by other human beings and are coerced to work by the sheer force of violence. Wicked people hunting down the most vulnerable. And let me pause and let you catch your breath. (laughs) Because you probably weren't expecting to hear this when you came to church this morning. And I'm sorry about that. But I do get to tell you that there's another half of the story. And the extraordinary half, the other half of the story, is that yes, slavery is more vast than ever, but it's also more stoppable than ever. And you may ask, well, how can that be? The reason why it is now possible for the first time in our generation to see a generation to see the end of slavery, the reason it's possible is because slavery is now against the law for the first time in every country on the planet. 
That's never happened before. So if it's against the law, then why are so many people enslaved? That's a fair question. The answer, again, it's very simple. Slavery exists on a massive scale because there are huge swaths in our world where you simply do not get in trouble for enslaving another human being. That's why it's so massive. There are laws in every country, but in many countries, the laws simply are not enforced. The bad guys get away with it. That's why it exists on a massive scale. How about more good news? And there is good news. Not only is slavery stoppable, but we've also, for the first time ever, we've found the vaccine that stops slavery. And what is the vaccine? It's this, effective law enforcement coupled with effective care for the survivors. Because the truth is, slave owners are not brave people. If they find out that they will get in trouble for enslaving others, they stop doing it. And the good news, more good news, is that former slaves are no longer consigned to lives of sadness and deprivation, but we found that effective care through timely love and tender mercy can restore lives and give people hope and purpose. And when done in the name of Jesus Christ, it's all the more effective. So I'm giving you a lot of bad news, but I'm also giving you some wonderful, amazing good news this morning. It is a dark world out there, but there is real, tangible, effective hope that can make a difference. The end of slavery starts with believers who can see. We at IJM truly believe that. So hear these words again from the psalmist that were read. The Lord is king forever and ever. He hears the desire of the afflicted. He encourages them and listens to their cry. The Lord defends the fatherless and the oppressed. Folks, we are not in this fight alone. Thank God for that. Because it's too big if we were. There's a line in that video, the first time I heard it, I was so proud. It said, IJM is the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world. I heard that the first time I was a brand new IJM employee. I thought, wow, that is really something to be proud of. A few minutes later, it hit me, you know what? Actually, that's sad and pathetic that a small organization with less than a thousand people is the largest anti-slavery organization on the planet? Something is wrong here. <laughs> 45 million slaves, and we're the big fish? 
That's why we need your help. (laughs) This is far too big for any one organization, even one uh, as mighty as IJM. If we're the biggest, we're in trouble. We need your help. We need the body of Christ to step up. I've seen High Point Church do that before. I know you, had do, you do this. It was about 15 years ago that this church hosted a conference to engage the church in the fight against HIV and AIDS. Modern-day leprosy. A lot of churches around the country didn't know what to do. And I was a part of that conference. I sat in this room as this church took leadership and helped to lead the way. AIDS still exists, but it's no longer a life sentence or a death sentence. And it's partly because churches in the name of Jesus responded and reached out and touched the leper. This church led the way. And you're doing it again through IJM in the Dominican Republic. I've never been to the Dominican Republic. I hear it's beautiful, wonderful beaches. Unfortunately, it's also a hotbed for sex tourism. And sex trafficking there is rampant. In 2003, the Dominican Republic passed a law making sex trafficking illegal. And in the decade after that law was passed, you know how many convictions there were of sex traffickers? Six. Six in 10 years. They didn't know what to do. IJM opened up an office there three or four years ago, and in that time, there's been double the number of convictions. Children are being rescued. Women are being restored. And we're doing it because of churches like yours that are saying, we want to help. We want to make a difference in the name of Jesus. I traveled to Ghana this past summer where IJM opened an office. Ghana, you may recall, sits in the South Atlantic. It's a coastal country. It used to be called the Gold Coast. Gold used to be the primary trading commodity until uh, a few hundred years ago, people realized you could make more money trading people. And so on the coast of Ghana, there's a number of castles that the British had built, and I got to visit one of those castles. It's called Cape Coast Castle. It's a beautiful structure. On the top are glorious rooms where the owners lived. They had wonderful views, airy breezes, and they traded gold until they started the slave trade. When the slave trade started, there was an addition made to the castle, and that was in the basement. And there were dungeons hollowed out, and I walked into both of those dungeons. In one dungeon, the male slaves were held, In the other dungeon, the female slaves were held. Anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 people at a time in astonishingly primitive conditions. As agonizing as it was 
to walk into those dungeons. Probably the most heartbreaking part of my tour of the Cape Castle came in the middle section of the building where a chapel existed. And each Sunday, people would come and worship. And right below them were thousands upon thousands of human beings enslaved in unspeaking, unspeakably primitive conditions. There was a vent right outside the window of the chapel, the one vent to the dungeon, where I have to imagine each of the worshipers could either smell or hear or both the people who were living below them. And what I could not imagine was what kind of a disconnect was there between heart and head that would allow worshipers of Jesus Christ to stroll each and every Sunday past that vent into the chapel to praise God. Somehow, they made that disconnect, and the slave trade went on in Ghana for years and years. It is now illegal there, and as, as it is in every other country in the world. But going to that castle made me realize that Dr. King's quote that I'm about to share with you still rings true. Martin Luther King said this, history will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. Folks, we're good people, but the time for silence is over. After what you've heard today, silence is not an option. Your church has already responded, and for that, I thank you. There are other opportunities as well. If the Lord is laying it upon your heart today to pray, you can find a prayer card at the table or at the lunch where you can give us your information. We will equip you to know how to pray. Prayer is at the heartbeat of who IJM is. If you want to give your resources, as you heard from your pastor, you have the permission to do that. And for that, I thank you, because not every church does that. But if you want to give some of your treasure today, you can become a freedom partner and give a monthly gift that will go to IGM to help us do this work. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Jesus said that because he knew when we give of our treasure, we get a piece of our heart. We need your heart to be with us in this battle. Thank you that you've already given it. And as you leave today, please let me pray for you. Jesus, we've heard hard truths today, but we've also heard that you, O oh God, are the defender of the weak. And we know that it breaks your heart 
to know that this exists. And so my prayer is that if we came here clueless today, that the blinders are now off. And my prayer is also that you would make it clear what it is that you would like us to do. Whether it's in our personal lives, our family lives, our lives at school, at work, whether it's on a local scale or a global scale, help us to know what the next step is that you call us to. Thank you for this church, which for years has been an outpost of justice. Bless this church in their efforts to serve you. Thank you that you remind us that we are not alone. In your name, we pray, amen.